when my wife and I first uh, got married, I feel like over time, uh, if you've been married for a while, been in long-term relationships, that person that you're with seems to rub off on you after a while, for the good, hopefully, you know. I was a real hothead. I still am sometimes, but a real hothead. So we were just married, and we moved to Oklahoma. I was finishing school, and we owned nothing. We bought a Honda Prelude cash, and every, our whole life fit in the Prelude. Everything. Little two-door thing. And so when we moved down there, we had an air mattress to sleep on, and someone donated a little love seat and a little small TV and a tacky-looking but effective wood table with glass inlay on it. That's all we had. And so the first few months, you know, exciting, you're new married and all that. And then out of nowhere, I got a bill from the IRS. And when you see the IRS, you're either happy or you're just not so happy. You know, so, so I, I open it up. We're newly married. And I see this bill. And it was for previous year's taxes. And I'd way underpaid. I'm like, oh my goodness, we're dead. Like, I, I, we don't have, I got no money. I'm still a student. How am I going to pay this bill? I'm like, ah, boom, hit the table and smash the glass. And my wife is so kind. She wants to crack up. I didn't cut anything or anything. But she's like, mm, holding back. I'm like, oh, no, we don't even have a table. We got to eat on the floor. <laughs> it's horrible, you know. And um, life is like that. You know, sometimes when you're really pinched or something comes, quick out of left field, what's really on the inside pops out. And I'm ashamed to say, I'm embarrassed, but it was 20-something years ago, so I'm slightly nicer now. We have, don't have a glass table, duh. You know, <laughs> skip that. But, but more than that, um, sometimes it reminds us that we don't respond to change or something we don't like or something that is negative in the way that we wish we would. And as a follower of Jesus, we want to really think about tonight how we respond when life comes our way and takes us on a turn. Uh, we've been looking at the life of Jesus. Remember last week, it was uh, Mark giving us the inside scoop when Jesus in his lowest point. Remember Jesus is on his knees praying to the Father last week in the garden. Oh God, Father, take this cup from me. But then he's got that one line in that prayer, uh, yet not what I will, but what you will. Uh, Jesus knew how to wrestle with his Father how, how do you go forward when you know that God's sending you in a way that you don't want to go? Jesus comes to grips. Okay, Father, I want whatever you want. Jesus makes the right response always. Well, well tonight we're going to see Jesus when he's arrested. And we're going to look at the scene and see how different people in it react and respond. Like I lashed out and hit the table. We're going to see how people respond in the worst of circumstances. Verse 43 of Mark 14. It says, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. And with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs uh, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Uh, remember these three groups of people back from Mark 13. These three groups make up the Sanhedrin. These three groups are the leaders of the Jewish people. Remember, uh, the Jewish people are living in Jerusalem, but they're led by the Romans. But the Romans allowed for conquered people to let local rule on things that weren't like capital punishment. So you couldn't, a Jewish leader couldn't punish someone to death, but they could lead on local matters. So the very people that Jesus was speaking to at the temple in Mark 13, now they send people with clubs and swords to arrest Jesus at night. Verse 44. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. 
Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. And now we're going to see some responses. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. So Jesus is about to get arrested, and one guy takes his sword out and cuts a guy's ear off. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. And then this almost comical end, verse 51. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, linen, wrinkles, think about it for a second. Linen is like kind of cool in the summer and everything, but it's, anyway. When I read linen, I immediately think, I'd like to wear it, but I can't. It's just too, I just need things to be pressed. And have you found that? Anyway. <laughs> I, I, whenever I read linen, I'm like, I can't. It's, anyway. Was following Jesus. But look at what happens here. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. See, linen, not worth it. Anyway. So we're going to look at the text. We're going to look at the text tonight. And we want to see different responses. Remember, Jesus was at his lowest point, but he responds in the right way. And when things don't go Jesus' way, remember, let's just look back one verse before we read, verse 42. Before Jesus is arrested, look at what he says. He ended his prayer. He says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So at the arrest scene of Jesus, Jesus is about to be controlled. There's this uh, a Greek word called krateo that is used for the word arrest. But the word could mean to take control or to seize. And this word is in 46, 49, 51. It's used four times. Mark uses the same word to say what's about to happen to Jesus. He's about to be seized. He's about to be controlled. But ironically, the way Mark presents the story, Jesus is in total control. And that's what we want to see when how do you respond when things come your way that you weren't expecting? There is a way to respond that's under control. Even though the circumstances are about to control, people are about to seize Jesus, he's about to be arrested, yet at the same time, the way Mark presents it, Jesus is the only one in control. What am I saying? I'm saying tonight, your circumstances that have come your way or, or maybe may come your way in the future, they may spiral you out of control. How many of you would agree that some things, sometimes things happen to us that we had, we had nothing to do with? They come our way. But in Jesus, we see the example of how to, even when things are coming out of control, how we can be in control. So Jesus is arrested. Now, interestingly enough, there are only two names mentioned. We're going to see four different responses tonight. There's four different responses in this text that, that we see how people um, attach themselves to this situation but only two names are mentioned. Look at verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, and then this, this qualifier, one of the 12. Only two names are mentioned in this passage, Judas and Jesus. The rest, for, for whatever reason, Mark says, I'm not even going to name them. So just scanning through, look, look at the middle of verse 43. They sent from the chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders. Which one sent the people with clubs and knives? We don't know. Then, then verse 44, the betrayer. So he uses Judas's name, but he almost doesn't want to. Uh, then end of verse 44, they led him away under guard. Like who's the guard going to be? We don't know. Um, look at verse 46, the men seized Jesus and arrested him. So I just want us to see that most of the people listed here 
we don't even see their name because Judas, uh, Judas and Jesus, Jesus are going to be the contrast. And so there's, there's Judas's way and then there's Jesus's way. So let's just look at, at four different responses. The first one is by the betrayer, Judas. So Judas betrays with a kiss. Um, Jesus is about to be arrested. Now, who sets it up? They come at night. That's really interesting. It's the high point in Jerusalem, the biggest crowds. Everyone's there to celebrate Passover. So why don't they just arrest Jesus in public? He was just at the temple, just teaching. Why don't they arrest him here? It's because if you're going to take someone out, when do you do it? You arrest someone when they least expect it. And they are expecting Jesus' followers to respond and lash out. That's why the Sanhedrin send out a group with clubs and knives, and they send out their army, so to speak, to surround Jesus. If you could take the leader out at night, you can scatter the disciples, and they don't know what to do, and they can't, can't make an immediate response. You attack at night. But the only way they find Jesus, because you got to remember, there's no GPS. Jesus doesn't have an iPhone. can't, like, find Jesus app. Boop, boop, boop. You know, you, you don't know where he is, the only way to get to Jesus is to get to one of Jesus' followers, and the Sanhedrin find Judas. So, so Judas, if you think about responses, Judas is responding in, in a way to Jesus that someone would say, I would never do that. Well, think about it. Judas was completely disappointed by Jesus. Completely disappointed because Jesus is supposed to be the Messiah. He's supposed to be the Savior. He's supposed to be the one... To, to restore Israel back to its former glory. He's supposed to be Israel's king. He's supposed to kick out the Romans. And as Judas spends three years with Jesus, he becomes unconvinced. So it, it does remind us that sometimes we can make a judgment call based on half of the information needed or misinformation. Was Jesus the son of God, yes or no? Yes, was Jesus Israel's Messiah, yes or no? Yes, he is who he says he is, but Judas doesn't get it right. And sometimes we respond to circumstances without having all of the facts, and we can create chaos. You can cause trouble on your job by starting to spread rumors or stories without all the facts. You can ruin a good friendship and a relationship by coming to judgments about people without understanding all the facts. And so don't look bad on Judas because we are like Judas more often than we want to admit, aren't we? And so Jesus is betrayed by his own friend. He betrays him with a kiss. And this is what he does. The sign, first century, everyone, if you go to the Middle East today, you hug, you embrace, kiss on the left, kiss on the right cheek, you're warm. And in Jesus' day, a student would come to the rabbi and they would kiss him as embrace and welcome. And so the very sign of welcome is what Judas picks as the sign to say, the guy that I hug and kiss, that's the rabbi, that's the teacher, you arrest him. And that's what Judas decides to do. The closest friend. you got to remember that Jesus, yes, he's God, but he is a human, full on. And as a man, to be betrayed, stabbed in the back, so to speak, by one of your closest. It's not like a distant follower. Have you ever been let down by someone like super, super close? Maybe a mom or a dad or a brother or sister or a neighbor or like friend or partner and you're like, wow, I can't believe this guy would do this to me. Jesus is betrayed by one of his top 12, eaten with him, slept beside him. He, Judas has seen the miracles. Judas has heard the teaching. Judas can have any question he wants answered, and yet he turns on him. Uh, I, have, I, I know what that's like in small part. 
my wife and I were married for a couple years, and we were serving with Luis Palau, and we moved to Kansas City to work on this mission there, and we moved there for about a year and a half. And we were really longing as a young married couple. We had no kids. We just wanted some deep friendships of people our age and who kind of were new in marriage to kind of figure things out. And God provided that. We went to this church, and, and they started a new married couples group, and we joined it, and it was so life-giving. These became our closest friends for, for like a year to almost a year and a few months. We spent so much time, because other than work, we didn't have any relatives in Kansas City, so after work, we'd go hang out. Weekends, we'd go camping. We'd, these were our best friends, about five couples. And so towards the tail end, we were getting ready to move on in a few months. The guys got together on a weekend getaway, and we went to a, a conference, just the guys, to bond, connect, have some fun. It was in St. Louis. We drove together and hung out. And I remember it was late night in the hotel. We are chatting about life. And guys just started to open up about stuff. What's really going on in their thought life? What's really going on at work? And praying for one another. It was a powerful time. And then one of the guys pulled me aside and said, hey, can we go outside? I just want to share some stuff with you. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no problem. So we went out and walked outside the hotel room. And, and he was one of the closest friends of all these couples. And he, his wife and, uh, and he and, and my wife and I, we would do the most together. And he's like, I just got to tell you, I've been thinking about talking about this for a long time. And I'm thinking he's going to just share something I could pray over. And he's like, I, I got to say, since the time that you guys moved here and we started hanging out together, um, I've really been attracted to your wife. And I'm like, and he goes on to share about all these feelings he has for my wife. Now, I, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. I wanted to take him out. Like, right there in the parking lot. I'm like, are there any cameras? You know, like, <laughs> DNA evidence, put on my gloves. No. But I was like, I was totally blown away. We're staying at this hotel. We got another day before we go home. Like, how do I go back into the, my room? And how do I even deal with this? And it was one of, I, again, I don't understand what it's like for Jesus to have one of his best buddies rat him out. But I do know what it's like to experience having a close friend seemingly turn on you or disappoint you in the biggest way. And I'd like to say that, oh, the next day I was just great, no problem. Hey, come on, buddy. You know, I, I just was stewing and we made it all the way home. And then I, how am I going to tell my wife this? And I, I can't hang out with this guy. And it really shattered this great group. It shattered the whole thing, and for a long time, by the grace of God, we were moving away, and that really helped, but for a long time, I just, oh, bitterness, because how could he do this, and it made me replay everything we had done, you know, like, why did they always invite us over, and why, you know, like, you, you start to go, like, what, and nothing had happened, and by God's grace, we were protected, but I do know what it's like to feel that, why, and how could this happen? Now, God, in his goodness, allowed me to not murder him, for one thing, and and to really be whole and restored over time. And, and now that I look back, I'm totally okay. And if he were to walk in the room, we would be fine. And God's grace is good enough. But I just say that because how do we respond when things come our way that we weren't expecting? Sometimes our first reaction is very unlike Jesus. And I would say the first six months after that, I was very unlike Jesus. But by God's grace, I have the power to change now, some of you, why do I mention that some of you have come to this church because you were at another community and something happened. Um, followers of Jesus aren't exempt from turning on other followers of Jesus. Would you agree? 
And sometimes we got to deal with the stuff. And I'm here to encourage you that Jesus knows if you have been hurt by someone else who calls on God and says they're a Christian, if you've been hurt by someone else that should have been a great friend that turned out to be an enemy, so to speak, Jesus understands what that is like. And Jesus, just like he has over time healed and helped me, Jesus can step in and he could do the work in you so that you can learn in the future to respond like him. We cannot help stuff coming our way. That's part of the human experience. Jesus experiences it. But we can change the way that we respond. So Judas is one. He, he responds in the wrong way. He, he, he gives the kiss. That turns out to be the kiss of death. Look at the second response, though, in verse 47. It says, Simon, uh, it doesn't say Simon Peter, but we know it's Simon Peter. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest cutting off his ears. So, so John fills in the gap. So throw it on the screen. John 18 gives us the detail uh, because Mark doesn't mention him by name. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention, but John decides, John's the last gospel written. We don't know exactly why, but I think no one else wrote about Simon Peter, you know. I and mean, think about it. If you read about Simon Peter, he's the first one to attack. So are you going to write in your gospel that Simon Peter cut off someone's ear? No, man, they're all scared of him. That's my, like, I don't know if that's true, but, you know, but John's the last gospel writer to write. And so he just throws it in there. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest servant. Just in case you don't know, you, you, you're confused. Cutting off his right ear, the servant's name was Malchus. Like he goes, he like, hey, and just in case Simon denies it, go to Malchus. He's got a new ear. Now, how do we know that? Luke 22, Luke 22 tells us, uh, Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. So you get this crazy scene. People with clubs and swords ready to arrest Jesus. And then you have Simon Peter who does a good thing. He stands up. Remember, G Simon said, I will never deny you. Remember that? I will never deny you. And now he's given the first opportunity to stand up for Jesus. And Simon stands up. So don't look down on him. He's trying to protect his master. But, but, but Jesus would have none of it. The second response is Simon Peter lashes out. And, and so Judas misunderstands the facts and he turns on the Savior. Sometimes we respond that way. Misinformation, wrong information, wrong attitude, jealous heart, envy, pride. And we, we do like Judas. We turn on the people we should stand up for. Sometimes we respond like Simon Peter. We just, me hitting the table, bam! And we lash out. And there's regret. Third response is the Jesus response. Jesus connects with Scripture. Now, where do I get that? It's right in verse 49. Uh, let's look at it. Verse 49 says, oh, first, first 48. Am I leading rebellions of Jesus that you come out with swords and clubs to capture me? He's like, I'm not a criminal. Uh, every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts. You didn't arrest me. So, Jesus doesn't do what Simon Peter does. Jesus doesn't speak against Judas. At least Mark doesn't tell us that. Instead, Jesus says, but the scriptures must be what? Fulfilled. And so when stuff comes your way, when, when circumstances happen that you weren't planning on, you could be like Judas and have half the facts and respond in that way. You could be like Simon and just lash out uh, in a way that's inappropriate or you could be like Jesus, and he looks at his circumstances, and because his mind is already saturated with the scriptures. What, what scriptures are Jesus 
uh, thinking about. We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. But we do know Mark, uh, Jesus quotes Isaiah more than anybody else. Because in Isaiah, towards the end of Isaiah, in the 50s and 60s, are this picture in Isaiah, through this prophecy, about a servant who will suffer. Uh, and if you've read the end of Isaiah, there's a lot of stuff that parallels what happens at the crucifixion of Jesus and the mutilation of Jesus. And so I got to think that, that Jesus is probably thinking about Isaiah 53 and 54 and about how this servant is going to stand with those who are full of pain and suffering. And we don't get the specifics, but we know that Jesus sees his story in light of God's big story. And that is the encouraging word tonight. You cannot help the circumstances that come your way. Sometimes you have a Judas that stabs you in the back. You have a circumstance you didn't ask for. But you, we can learn to respond in the right way, and that is by looking at what God has said and fitting what's happening to me inside of what God has said. The scriptures, my friend, they give us perspective. We need to see, we get so caught up in the heat of the moment or the person or the issue, and we can respond poorly but if we'll take a step back and we'll read what God has said and what God has done, it will give us the tools that we need to respond in a way like Jesus. So Jesus responds according to the scriptures. So you're going to see between now and the end of Mark 16 that in every circumstance at Jesus' arrest here, at Jesus' trial, at Jesus' crucifixion, that you never see Jesus lashing out. You never see Jesus speaking an ill word against anyone, but rather he keeps his cool, he has his peace, because at time alone with the Father, remember last week, in Gethsemane, he heard instructions from his Father. For us, it's time in the scriptures when you, when you do and think in, line of, in light of what God has said, it will give you the power, the ability to do what other people can't do. Our culture is enamored with issue and response. Get your rights. Do whatever it takes. Get ahead. But yet God's word gives us a greater perspective. I was telling you guys last week, if you were here, about a friend of mine, Dan. And uh, Dan's been struggling, Dan Owens, for, with cancer for three years now. And I, I was reading again one of his journal posts. And I normally don't do this, but this is a long quote. And I want to read it to you. He's got a post from July 1 that when I was thinking about this message, it really ties it together. So just labor with me here. This is a long post, but it's so telling. And quote, today I'll head back to Stanford for a 9 a.m. meeting tomorrow to talk about more chemo as the only possible way to slow the cancer down that's in my chest wall. So Dan had cancer, started in his leg, and then went to his lungs, and he's had multiple surgeries. But a couple of days ago, he was getting more tests. And then let me continue. For my family and I, this is a very hard blow because up until now, no chemo has done anything to help slow down the cancer. Medically speaking, my hope has always been in the surgeries performed and the radiation given because those are the only two things that could actually kill or get rid of the cancer. Chemotherapy gives me no hope at all, and my family knows it. I will, however, go to listen to Dr. Aganju's speech tomorrow and see what she has to say. And listen to this line. I do know by what she told me on the phone yesterday morning, she's trying to extend my life by another six to 12 months. So my friend, who's just in his mid-50s, after three years, has been given maybe six to 12 months to, to live. And let me just continue. Last night, after some pretty subdued birthday celebrations, so he gets this right around his birthday, I went to bed, and my nightly Bible reading 
was straight from the Lord to me. Then he quotes 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 through 18. It seemed very personal to me that the Lord wanted to remind me of the reality of my present situation. I read it again and again to the point where I finally had a smile on my face and thanked the Lord for his message of love. I turned the light off and I went to sleep. I know you'll continue to pray to join me in prayer for God's healing power to fall upon me and also for a supernatural peace to envelop my family. I'll let you know what the doctor says after I meet with her tomorrow. Well, he did meet with her uh, the next day and he, and he found out there's very little that they can do and the news is not good. But I want to throw up a quote from, from this little blog post because it really touched me. My nightly Bible reading was straight from the Lord for me. Now, was 2 Corinthians 4 written for my friend Dan? On one sense, no. 2 Corinthians is a letter from Paul to Corinth 2,000 years ago. But here's what happens, my friends. If you want to gain perspective, you want to know how to respond to difficult circumstances, in his case, a death sentence of cancer. But yet he goes to sleep thanking God and, and with a bit of joy, and he's able to go to bed. Why? Because the, that night in his Bible reading, the Lord wrote something for him. This is the mystery of the scriptures. And if you're new to Jesus or thinking about it, you need to know this. Yes, the Bible is written for people in a certain time in a certain place. So Paul wrote 2,000 years ago a letter to, to Corinth. But by the Spirit of God, what was applicable to them then is now applicable to us now. And so Dan has the right to say as a follower of Jesus that the Lord spoke to me as he just read the Bible and notice the phrase, my nightly Bible reading. My friend, if you want to learn the art of responding well to difficult circumstances, it comes in the habit, and it is exactly that. It's a habit. The, the, the method, the process, the, the, the ritual, if you even want to use that term, of immersing your mind, your thoughts, your energy in the scriptures. If you go to the Bible in times of trouble, but you don't go to the Bible when things are okay. You're going to have a tough time because you're going to God, speak to me, please. I got, I, need, I got an issue. Lord, help me. But if you make it your daily rhythm to immerse your mind and your heart and your attention on what God has said, let me tell you, my friends, in your moment of need, God will be there and he will speak to you. Now, am I saying if you never read the Bible and you're in trouble, you shouldn't read the Bible? No, you should. But what I am suggesting is we shouldn't wait till times of trouble. And if we'll make that part of our rhythm and part of our life, God, day by day, as we're confronted with all sorts of stuff, I encourage you, I challenge you, this summer, summer's a great time because many of us, we take a little getaway or have a little bit of downtime, unless you're a mom, because kids are out of school, and life's really, summer for moms, like, hard, like, what do I do with these kids? Send them away, you know. Uh, but, uh, but, but for the rest of us, Make it a time, like if you're going to go to the coast or something, grab your Bible. And if you don't normally spend an hour or two reading, I encourage you, all these novels out there, they may be good for a moment, but they won't change your world. 
Get on the beach and, and open your Bible. If you're going to, to the, the uh, central Oregon or on a long holiday, whatever it is, take some extra time and immerse yourself in the scriptures because you never know. And my friend, if you'll read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit in the moment of need will apply what God wrote thousands of years ago to your current circumstance. This seems so simplistic, but I tell you, there is no substitute. And Jesus, because he is immersed in the scriptures, he can respond in the right way. And so when Judas comes against him, he's got Isaiah in his mind and knows God has spoken through his prophet 700 years ago that this servant, who Jesus is, is gonna be let down. So he doesn't lash against Judas. And he doesn't even lash against Simon Peter. He just says, Simon, put the thing away. This is God's plan for me. And so I got an email this morning from Dan. We've been emailing back and forth. And I responded to that post, just praying for him. And I got an email him from this morning. And he was so full of joy and so full of hope. And his circumstances, humanly speaking, are bleak at best. But his hope is in Jesus. He goes, hey, pray for me. Pray God's healing power. I don't know what tomorrow holds. But he's like, cancer is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Because God has taught and retaught me so many things I hate that I have it. I hate the pain, but I see God in it. How can you respond that way? It's because he's immersed his mind in the scriptures. My friend, that will be the most healthy way. If you want to respond well, search the scriptures. And the fourth response that I want us to see here is it catches the rest of us because you may not be like Judas. You may not be like Simon. And you may not feel like you're like Jesus yet in his response. But look at the kind of the catch-all. It's in verse 50. It says, then everyone deserted him and fled. And really, that's what it comes down to. In the end, nobody stands by Jesus. Mark doesn't give us everyone's names. He just gives Judas and Jesus. And then he gives this blanket statement, everyone. Everyone deserted him and fled. Even to the point where he gives us what I think is a strange example of this young man wearing linen, nice fabric, wrinkly, and that's following him and they seized him so he doesn't run fast enough, but he gets caught, and he fled naked and, and, and ran away. Everyone leaves Jesus at the end. So if you feel like, man, in the last six months, I'm doing that well following Jesus, join the club. Because <laughs> his 12, leave him, and the 70, leave him, and the 100, leave him. Everyone, in Jesus' toughest time, everyone is gone. And what does that tell me? It tells me that if you feel like you've disappointed yourself or disappointed God or disappointed your faith, join the club. Everyone at some point in your Christian experience, you're going to get it wrong. You're going to bang the table when you should have just prayed God. And you know, in the end, that little IRS bill was so easily paid. We did have the funds, just a little finagling here and there. And in the end, uh, I, I was able to forgive this guy who said something and thought something that was totally inappropriate. And it, again... I have my moments of stumbling, and you do as well. Now, why does he include this, the guy running um, away with a linen garment? Some people think, and there's no way of saying, but it's an interesting factoid. Some people think that it was John Mark writing that. Uh, some commentators and researchers have said this could be John Mark who wrote the gospel, his way of subtly giving like a biographical note that he was the one who ran away and was ashamed. Whether that's true or not, the point is everyone's failed. And this is why there's good news tonight. If you have stumbled, which is true, and if you have failed and if you're flawed, then you're just like the rest of the disciples. So all of us are in the same place. 
And so maybe you've done well on a few occasions, but we all have our blunders to share it well as well. So we're all on an equal footing. And here's the good news. Jesus understands it all, and that's why he came. You see, the gospel isn't good news for people who have it together. The gospel is good news for people who don't have it together, who are full of flaws and full of history and full of past. And so tonight, if you see yourself like Judas or like Simon Peter or just short of like Jesus, you're in good company. Uh, One of the disciples who fled Jesus was John. And later on in his life, John writes a couple of little letters to churches. And I want to kind of end with this this, uh, passage of Scripture from 1 John 1. And I'm going to throw it on the screen for you. I just want you to sit in it and let it Let it pull all of these thoughts together tonight. 1 John 1 says, This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God's light in him, there's no darkness at all. So Jesus always gets it right. Jesus is the Son of God, and he always responds in a way that's appropriate. Now, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Uh, John was one of those who escaped and ran away and fled. So it's like, if we're claiming that, that we walk in the light, but there's darkness at all, um, that, that, that's not true. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, the Son, purifies us from all sin. And this is just such good news. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, the gospel is the reminder that God came for broken people, for sin-filled people, and he offers forgiveness. So, so what John is saying, like he had his moment where he fled. But remember, Jesus does go to the cross and he rises again. And John and Simon Peter and the others, they're restored. The one guy that isn't is Judas. Nowhere in the story do we see any bit of hope for him. He went so far and did not receive. Could Judas have been forgiven? I got to think so. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. But That's why Mark gives us this contrast. He doesn't pull out the other disciples who failed, but he points out Judas, because in the end, Judas doesn't receive any of the good news. The good news is is that if we're on the path of darkness, we can step out of the path of darkness and into the path of light. So verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. So we got to confess tonight that all of us are flawed, and all of us have failed. But if we confess our sins, verse 9, he, Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his truth is not in us. If we confess, if we say what is already true, Jesus is faithful and just. And that's what we see even in Jesus's arrest tonight. What I want you to leave remembering is that Jesus is faithful. He's faithful when he's tempted to lash out against Judas or lash out against Simon or the rest of his followers, but Jesus remains faithful to the end. And and Jesus will be faithful to you. So the gospel is not if you do X, Y, and Z, then you receive God's favor. No, it's if you confess that you are not X, Y, and Z, you can receive God's favor. What we do is we step out of darkness and into God's light and say, God, will you purify me from my wrongdoing? God, heal that wound. Tonight, if you're here, have you just been beat up by other people and their response towards you has so injured you that your own walk with God and your own attitude has been hurt? Hear me tonight. In Jesus, who is faithful, there is absolute 
healing and forgiveness, and you can let that go, and you can move on, and you can be restored, and you don't have to walk in that wallowing like you have been before. Jesus can set you free. If you're the one who's done done the injuring, Jesus will give you the power to even forgive yourself. So you say, I'm the one who stuck someone in the back. I'm the one who's done the wrong. Jesus is faithful. No matter if you're the one who received the pain or inflicted the pain, Jesus is faithful to both. And he will be faithful to you.